episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be looking at episode 516 entitled The Incident Part 1. This is the 102nd episode of the series and there are 19 to go. A quick reminder that if you'd like to share feedback you can say hello to me on Twitter where I'm looking back lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the webpage lookingbackatlost.podbean.com and last but certainly not least you can leave a message on the listener line minded by those google robots 732-707-1815 and speaking of some feedback i have a plethora of uh, feedback to share both this week and next first we'll get to uh, some of the written and then for next week uh, a selection or two from the listener line First, we start out with an email from Tim, who says, Congratulations on 100 episodes of Looking Back at Lost. It has been quite an experience. Thank you for recreating the Lost experience as closely as possible. It has been quite the journey. Tim goes on to say, I first discovered your podcast through the Lost Podcasting Network back when Season 2 started in your revisit of the series, and I've loved taking the journey through the seasons. I've even structured my rewatch around your podcasting schedule. I cannot wait to see how your coverage of this masterpiece series comes to a close. Once again, thank you for allowing us to revisit Lost with you. and can't wait to hear you cover the other series in the future. Well, certainly a big thank you, Tim, for your listening. It's always, uh, it's it's nice to know the people are out there. It really is. And um, your message certainly is not the first one to mention the Lost Podcasting Network. And, uh, you know, where would I be without the hard work of of Ryan? Um and uh and his lost podcasting network that brings me so much uh of the uh, of the audience that i have next up in the mailbag of sorts is a tweet from kyle kun who says this stretch of episodes are some of the best i really like ben's manipulation i haven't missed the podcast since the first week you run the lost podcasting network so there you go another uh, another listener courtesy of the lpn uh also showing that it is a very very small world indeed a tweet from John Bowman, uh, who says, uh, and this was uh, in reference to a trip I believe he took, oh, about a week ago, just saw Dominic Monaghan at a breakfast place I'm at in L.A. So certainly a reminder, as I said, you know, it's a very small world indeed, kind of very Lostian moment. Here we are all connected there. John Bowman is having breakfast not too far from old Dom. Uh, also, thanks to Jam Pip on Twitter, who sent me a new Twitter avatar. It's absolutely fantastic. Lastly, a note of correction, uh, so wisely pointed out from Mighty Tim on Twitter, who says, quote, If I may, the rest of the Oceanic Six coming back to the island was not purely incidental. Smokey Lock wanted them back so that he could kill all the potential candidates so he could leave the island. 
And Tim, mighty indeed, you're absolutely correct. This is, uh, this is most certainly the case. Um, as I've said before, and as I said to you on Twitter, you know, there are these times where I, where I realize that my memory of the episodes ahead of the podcast, right? So the six of these episodes where we're at, you know, from, from this vantage point, um, where they, they are the farthest in my memory because I haven't seen some of those, I haven't seen the season six episodes since 2010, whereas, let's say, I've seen, uh, you know, 516, 515 in the last week or so, in the last couple of weeks. So certainly, excellent point, Tim. Your correction is absolutely on the nose. And uh, yes, of course, that's why Smokey wanted to bring them back, and I, I certainly correct myself from, the, uh, from last week's episode. With that, let's now get into the Wikipedia summary for the episode, which opens in flashbacks with Jacob weaving a tapestry inside a temple-like room. He's then shown on the beach of the island, eating a fish near the large four-toed statue of Towerette, where he is visited by a man in a black shirt. The man comments on the sailing ship on the horizon, suggesting that Jacob has brought it to the island. The man states that no matter who comes to the island, the same thing happens over and over, and that the man will eventually find a loophole so that he can kill Jacob. As flashbacks continue, various characters encounter Jacob. As a little girl, Kate is visited by Jacob when she is caught shoplifting a lunchbox. He pays for it to placate the shopkeeper and tells her to be good. At age eight, Sawyer is visited after his parents' funeral. He's begun writing his letter to the con man Tom Sawyer, but his pen is out of ink, and Jacob gives him a replacement. Also, Saeed is visited shortly before his wife Nadia is killed, being hit by a car. Ilana is visited by Jacob while recovering in the hospital, and Jacob asks Ilana for help. Lastly, for this episode, Sun and Jin are visited by Jacob at their wedding, and he tells them that their love is special. In the 2007 portion of the story, Locke, Ben, Sun, and the others travel to the remains of the Towerette statue where Jacob resides. Locke assigns Ben the task of killing Jacob and provides motivation by reminding Ben of all the bad things that have happened to him. Ben admits that he has never seen Jacob and was lying about talking to him. All communication with Jacob was through notes brought by Richard, including the lists of people to be taken from the Oceanic 815 survival. At the same time, a group of survivors from Ajira Flight 316, including Ilana and Bram, travel toward Jacob's cabin with Frank and a giant metal crate from the cargo of the plane. They find the cabin deserted, and they set fire to it after realizing that someone else has been using it. They then travel to the statue. And in the 1977 portion of the story, following the events of the previous episode, Follow the Leader, Kate, Juliet, and Sawyer are on a submarine leaving the island. Kate convinces Juliet and Sawyer that they need to stop Jack from detonating the hydrogen bomb on the island. They force the captain to surface so that they may leave, instructing the captain to continue on a course away from the island. They arrive on the island, where they are greeted first by Vincent the dog, who has been in the care of Rose and Bernard for the past three years. Rose explains to the trio that she and Bernard are now retired and have a quiet life near the beach, scavenging food and avoiding detection by the Dharma Initiative. Rose points to the Dharma barracks, and they leave. At the same time, Jack and Saeed dismantle the hydrogen bomb in the tunnels under the Dharma Initiative's barracks in order to remove its core. Richard and Eloise assist Jack 
and Saeed in entering the barracks via the basement of one of the houses. Richard knocks out Eloise to prevent her traveling with them to detonate the bomb because she is pregnant. Saeed dons a Dharma jumpsuit in order to fit in at the barracks. They almost escape when Roger Linus recognizes him and shoots him. Jack and Saeed escape in a van driven by Hurley along with Jin and Miles. Hurley drives to the construction site of the Swan Station while Jack treats Saeed's wounds. However, they are stopped by Juliet, Sawyer, and Kate. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about this episode, or rather, the first half of this uh, two-parter incident. Let's get into Incident Part 1. Perhaps it's uh, a wise choice, perhaps it's an obvious choice, but uh, regardless, the show uh, opens with a cold open. I think, uh, you know, if there was any argument that there needed to be a previously on Lost, it you know, the answer is probably if you need it for a season finale, then uh, <laughs> then you shouldn't be watching. Anyhow, it, uh, it's a cold open to who later will be, uh, you know, what we will be told is Jacob. He is um, in a setting that we'll later recognize as inside the statue. It's it's absolutely, um, you know, there's this scene and then there's its mirror towards the end of uh, Incident Part 2 when we are back at this place uh, again. Anyhow, Jacob is on the loom and weaving cloth. Uh, very pedestrian, very monastic behaviors, almost boring behaviors, which I think is um, a seed that's meant to be planted for uh, for that scene later on in Incident Part 2. Uh, anyhow, I'll mention that there's a shot of, uh, of the fire in there, the, the fire pit. It seems to be running in reverse. Um, I think the, the actual you know shot itself has, has been reversed. Uh, the flames are licking down, not up. I wondered if that was on purpose uh, or if it was just something that you had to do uh, in order to, oh, get whatever camera move they were looking for, you know, to go from up above down to the fire as opposed to perhaps, uh, the you know, it was filmed in the reverse. Um, it might look out of place normally. I think that here the effect is uh, a, a fitting sense of being otherworldly. Uh, with that, we cut to Jacob uh, now outside uh, in the surf. He's retrieving a trap uh, from it, and there's some fantastic blocking in that particular moment as a wave crashes over a huge rock just behind him, kind of really selling the islandiness of it all. And uh, indeed, Jacob steps up his pace to avoid getting wet or made more wet than uh, splashing around in your in your ankles uh, would normally get you. It it, it immediately on a subconscious level the fact that he's avoiding getting wet it uh, it sells his humanity it's um you know if you'll pardon the religious illusion here it's kind of selling him as more a son of a carpenter not son of god um maybe he's the son of a fisherman because indeed in the next shot he's filleting cooking and eating a fish at this point the show you know it, it, it's the first hint that uh as i've said a number of times before you know this episode this finale this two-parter uh in so many ways functions as the kicking off point for season six a prologue for season six and given that we still have uh a number of questions to be answered including why the statue used to be bigger we're gonna, we're gonna learn in a bit that uh um, <laughs> we're at the full-size statue here 
more about the Black Rock, how Richard got there. All of these things are interconnected. And that seeing that that sailing ship, the tiniest of sailing ships uh, in the background there, is the first little hint that that too is a story that's going to be covered, frankly, before too long. Not tonight, not an instant part two, but, but certainly soon enough. Now, at this point, the symbolism might not be overwhelming, um, the things that we've seen thus far. Uh, however, sometimes symbols become all the more apparent with some contrast. Want some fish? Thank you. We'll just eat. I take it you're here because of the ship? I am. How did they find the island? You'll have to ask them when they get here. I don't have to ask. You brought them here. You're trying to prove me wrong, aren't you? You are wrong. Am I? They come, fight, they destroy, they corrupt. It always ends the same. It only ends once. Anything that happens before that, it's just progress. Do you have any idea how badly I want to kill you? Yes. One of these days, sooner or later, we're going to find a loophole, my friend. Well, when you do, I'll be right here. Always nice talking to you, Jacob. Nice talking to you, too. With that, the brilliance of the little nuggets uh, that we've seen of the statue in previous episodes, in previous seasons, becomes readily apparent as the camera cranes up, revealing the statue tall and proud and very complete. It's an instant confirmation as to when we are, the past. Now, granted, first-time viewers couldn't know exactly when, though the gut instinct of there being only so many sailing vessels that the show has come across, by my count two, uh, and only one that big, uh, the Black Rock. It's an obvious guess, certainly made easier by the confirmation uh, that we get when uh, the season six episode indeed covers that. Uh, but to return to, for a moment to the issue of contrast, the show is so wise and perhaps even brave to take things classical in this uh, in this uh, first scene, you know, first time viewers were, I think, surely on the fence as to the divinity, the powers, the even the kindness of Jacob. And I think there's an argument that for all of Jacob's altruism, um, as presented on the show, it's you know, it's nonetheless a portrait of a pretty complex guy who let Kate's Marshall die so horribly, or who let Charlie drown, or even who let Ethan be gunned down in such a brutal fashion. Conversely, though Jacob is just a man, you know, I think that we can say pretty definitively that he does border on the divine in a sort of non-cross-Christ sense, you know, given that Jacob has not died for anyone's sins. (laughs) At least Jacob hasn't died yet. Still, the basic contrast, the broad strokes are there. The light Jacob calmly offering his presumed fellow man uh, food, and the other man calmly uh, offering death. Um, All the lightness to Jacob, his clothing, his hair, um, 
his stubble and then uh, the, the contrast with uh, the man in black. I think it's worth mentioning as well that the great shock of these episodes, the idea that Smokey is Locke and Locke is Smokey, um, that idea is presented here in the teaser act. The show is using the model of weekly television for its favor. We don't naturally pair up the 515 zinger, I'm going to kill Jacob, with what takes place a mere three minutes later in the show, albeit in the first three minutes of this episode 516, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. But there it is. I'm going to kill Jacob. Jacob, I'm going to kill you. Within three minutes of each other, there's a little hint there. And with that, we're off to the races. After the title card, we're again in flashback uh, in the presumed corn-laden heartland. It somehow, just even from the first moments, it, it, it breathes... And, and, and speaks of a Kate flashback. I'm not sure why that is. Um, perhaps it's just the corn and the pickup truck. Perhaps it's a doubling of a location um, used before. It certainly, to me, was evocative of her Australia flashback, her Australia friend. Uh, again, it, it easily could be the the same spot or the same uh, the same neck of the woods in uh, in Hawaii. At any rate, it's seemingly a rather trite. Kate flashback where she's up to no good with her old pal Tom, who of course is identified by the toy plane for just an instant, and um, she's you know she's just been caught um, until in a shocking turn of, of the first of many flashbacks, Jacob. Yes, that Jacob. That's the shock of the uh, of the scene arrives to pay for the stolen lunchbox and offer her kind words of wisdom. It is, of course, the first of many times, as we'll, we'll slowly get the hint in this episode, um, certainly further in Incident Part 2, and then fairly definitively at the end of the episode, um, it's Jacob giving these little pushes, these little nudges towards, uh, towards candidates. Uh, candidates for his uh, replacement, uh, you know, because he's eager for a retirement, but certainly more on that at the end of Incident Part 2. For right now, the island story continues with the sub-crew handing out sedatives and Kate trying to convince Sawyer to get in on Jack's plan to uh, to blow up a bomb. Or is it to stop Jack from blowing up the bomb? I mean, I know that's where the episode ends up. Here, Kate's motivations, to me, they do seem a little wishy-washy. Surprise, surprise, it's Kate. Um, but it's it's perhaps not the best... I don't know, presentation of her of her of her reasons. Um, nonetheless, we get a handy recap and well done organic exposition. Yippee, thumbs up to the show. Um, and that simply must be the function of the scene uh, to, to spell out some exposition. And how can we tell? Because the story moves from her discussing the bomb to the bomb itself with Saeed giving all new exposition about breaking down the bomb to its core to blow up the pocket of energy. I guess all exposition can't just be naturally occurring. Sometimes they need to let everyone at home know what's going on. With that, speaking of pockets of energy, the story moves to above ground where irony abounds as Rosinski finds that Dr. Chang has shut down the drill. In the midst of a possible insurrection, you really think this is the ideal time for your experiments? 
I've been working on this project for six years. Designing a station that'll be able to manipulate electromagnetism in ways we only dreamed of. Have you thought about the consequences of drilling into that pocket? We have no idea what we if are going Edison to do. Edison was only worried about the consequences, we'd all still be sitting in the dark. I came to this island to change the world, Pierre. That's exactly what I intend to do. Let's get it started! Some of us are meant to change the world with the invention of the light bulb. Others, my dear Stuart, blow out their brains in a hatch-turned-figurative prison. Uh, what follows the clip uh, is a long shot of the drill going down, down, down to the darkness. Uh, clearly, it's meant to be a bit of an echo to the season one finale, where the camera had a long shot looking up, 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 as it descended into the darkness of the very same hatch. Also, the fact that the camera is headed down there, Juliet is headed down at the end of the episode, and indeed, so many of our characters are headed down there, or perhaps just on the other side uh, of the concrete wall that will be poured. Um, <laughs> it's where we're all headed, at least chronologically. With that, the story moves into journey mode across those lovely lava flats. The group is, of course, the others led by Locke, Smokey Locke, etc. It's smart of the show to space out uh, the man in black at the top of the episode and seeing Smokey Locke here. It's just you know, that way we're not ahead of where they want the big reveal to be in uh, Incident Part 2. At this point, there's a quick recap between Sun and Ben about how the latter hasn't seen Jacob ever. Here, once again, Sun is uh, functioning as, So tell me, and the audience, lots of things, please. With that, the focus moves to the head of the line, Richard and Smokey Locke talking about Richard's lack of faith with the presumed Locke. Here again, and it's familiar territory, but luscious nonetheless, there's this wonderful bit of tete-a-tete. Smokey deflects Richard by saying things like, you've been here longer than me, maybe you have an idea. And I've never seen someone who doesn't age before. These are all things meant to make the, the, the incongruities in the Locke story seem, well, seem less notable because Richard has his own uh, peculiarities, doesn't he? With that, the scene ends with Smokey suggesting that the other Ajira folks will need to be killed at some point. And speaking of those Ajira folks, because it's a finale episode, it's zipping along, we want to move from Sawyer and Kate talking about the bomb to the bomb, to this, to that. Now we're at, now we're you know with Smokey, etc. They talk about the Ajira folks. So we go to the Ajira folks, along with, of course, their secret package that I think we can look back and say Smokey would just as soon not let anyone see what is inside that box. Hence, perhaps, their need to be killed at some point. Uh, although I don't know that he knows for sure, but certainly there's, uh, you know, what's in the box. I, I don't know that he knows for sure, but certainly I think there's the suspicion that these might be, you know, part of Jacob's army. Uh, anyhow, the story moves to them paddling up to the main island beach. There's all sorts of juicy conversation about why they have Frank Lapidus. He's important, no kidding, as he's the key to a happy end for that Ajira return flight. Uh, and also discussion as to whether Frank is a candidate. I believe that is the first time that we're hearing that uh, in discussion. The first time that anyone is referencing a candidate. 
Anyhow, uh, after Frank's fake sleepy time routine is discovered, Alana, ah, lovely Alana, identifies herself to him as a friend. Certainly at this point, truer words were never spoken. And you know what? In the scene, there really is a nice bit of character shading as well, as Bram, who of course uh, serves as Alana's number two, he's first ready to pounce on Frank until Alana says to cool it. It's just kind of a nice, wordless reminder as to where Bram is, who Alana is, uh, on the totem pole. Uh, The act ends with little dialogue, but instead a terrifying selection from Giacchino as Alana orders the mystery box to be opened so that Frank, but not we the audience, can see that it is lock in the box. Terrific. After the act break, the show really, really, really pushes tipping its hand early. If not for the fact that things are certainly moving too fast for us to figure it all out. We're at a funeral and a coffin goes by. It's the second man-sized box that we've seen in two scenes. Again, the show is playing into its, uh, its format. Yes, for us on home video, it is moments later. Watching it live, it's three, four, five minutes later. So despite the fact that they're really getting close to telling us too much in terms of, hey, here's a box big enough for somebody to fit in. Boom. And here's a box where somebody's body is. Uh, you know, they're, they're using the television format to not, um, uh, to not let it spill too early. This is, of course, a flashback for Sawyer's parents, something that we can uh, certainly figure out easily enough by the sandy blonde hair of the boy and the two coffins. A short bit of time passes by, and the young Sawyer is momentarily alone, writing something. His pen won't work, and who gives him one? Jacob, of course, in his letter. In just a wonderful, wonderful moment, it's the letter to the real Mr. Sawyer. Some family member, presumably an uncle, reads the letter aloud so that all the audience can understand, and makes Sawyer promise to never, ever finish the letter. The path not taken is a bit directly stated. Uh, You know, it's this idea that he's going to, of course, finish writing the letter and uh, his life will be profoundly affected by it. And uh, as direct as it is, it's it's a good refrain nonetheless. With that, the story moves from boy Sawyer to man Sawyer, who states once again for everyone at home that the whole bomb, boom, 815 lands uh, is the plan. And before you can say boo... Uh, a sub-guard has come, Juliet's knocked him out, and there's a chance for all three to head back to the island. A gun to the sub-captain's head later for a quick resurface, and uh, shooting out the radio. With that, our heroes are on their way out of the tin can. And at this point, speaking of tin cans, Saeed's got one named Jughead, almost open all the way. There's some tense music and some dangerous-looking nuke parts with wires and, you know, bits and pieces that are shiny. And uh, it's all uh, amidst this that uh, Richard puts uh, some great pieces together. Now, not nuke pieces, of course, but rather story pieces. We've been wondering, I think, first-time viewers, as, as we sometimes are, why Richard visited Locke at birth and childhood. And at least part of the answer is already known. 
Richard, of course, met him in the 1950s. Now, now Jack fills in the rest. Despite Richard's doubts, Jack says, Richard should not give up on Locke. And it's the ultimate, ultimate man of faith statement here, which immediately for us, or for Richard 30 years later, has apparent and drastic consequences because the story moves to modern day Locke, albeit smoky Locke, leading the others down a very, very wrong path. And there is Richard not able to stop him, not able to sense, I mean, he senses the trouble, but not able to sense it enough because 30 years previous, he was told, don't give up on Locke. I think as first-time viewers, this scene, Jack saying, don't give up on him and Locke on this, uh, you know, 2007 portion of the story, feeling as though he's on some kind of mission, for first-time viewers, it's an affirmation. That's what the writers are going for. But, of course, it's not Locke. And as this 2007 scene continues, the knife is dug even deeper. As Ben explains that he's following Smokey Locke because Smokey Alex told him to do so. With this, Smokey confirms that you'll do anything. Yes, says Ben, who in just yet another moment of fantastic acting, uh, he just looks like a beaten man. Uh, You know, his soul is beaten, aside from those lingering cuts on his face. Then Ben is fed the great, difficult, almost biblical burden. Locke isn't killing Jacob. Ben is. Now, again, the pace of the show here plays into keeping the secret a secret. It was only 20 minutes previously in the episode that the man in black told Jacob that he couldn't kill him, but he'd find a loophole. Now we've seen Locke say he's going to kill Jacob, but by way of someone else. It, it is astonishing to me how close the show cuts things here, how they're just completely, they're completely unafraid to, to really, uh, I don't know, skirt the issue so closely. So you look back the second time and say, my goodness, not only is Locke acting differently, but, but it's there in the story. It's so, it's so close. It's from, from, you know, a handful of scenes previous. With that, there's an act break. And then we have something that certainly I think we can see coming the, the minute, the minute that we uh, come back, uh, we're, we're ready for a tremendously sad time about to happen. We see Saeed and Nadia happily crossing the street. And it's just, I think, instantly we must know that there's, that there's trouble afoot. And at that moment, she gets hit, and it's a tremendously effective and graphic moment. However, that's not the surprise. It's that the seemingly infallible Jacob is the one who interrupts Saeed, allowing her to be hit. Or, or is it that Jacob saves Saeed from being hit, and Nadia is just simply collateral damage? I think that we can't be sure. Certainly... You know, it's 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 suggested at the very least that it's at the hands of Widmore that Nadia uh, is killed. However, is uh, is uh, uh, that something that Ben merely says in order to recruit uh, to recruit Saeed for that revenge mission? Regardless, it's it seems that uh, for for Nadia to be hit standing where she was, um, probably Saeed was going to be hit too. 
perhaps you could argue, well, if the two of them just kept walking, they would have been five feet past the the spot of impact and and been you know would have been a near miss. But the way I take things here, it's not that it's not that Jacob is uh, is unkind or unconcerned to the fact that Nadia is going to die. However, Nadia is going to die. It's something that we've seen in the uh, Eloise Hawking. Uh, episodes and things she's repeated if Nadia's time is up her time is up however it seems that Saeed's time is not up and that Jacob extends things at least for a for a short time so again I think there's there's an instinct for Jacob to be looked at as uh Christ-like God-like infallible religious heavenly some sort of mix of those things um then there's these times where you say, well, how could, you know, how could a Jacob let Nadia be hit by a car? Well, I suppose it's the same argument. How could God let Nadia be hit by a car or any of the, the real life sadnesses that we know uh, uh, either personally or, or by extension that have, have happened uh, to people? I certainly have no answer to that. I think that nonetheless, the show, while presenting Jacob as a complex character, the show is always happy to return uh, him to the side of good, and I think that there's there's little little true discussion to be had, at least as to the show's intentions. Anyhow, with that uh, flashback over, Said has packed the the bomb, uh, at least the bare bits of the bomb, and he, Jack, Richard, and young Ellie sneak about in the Temple of Doom passageways, then break into a basement of a Dharma house, though. Interestingly, Richard, as the guy behind the guy, or gal, uh, bops Ellie on the head um, in order to protect her and himself from any sort of uh, risk. That, of course, leaves Jack and Saeed to sneak into the house, which ends up being, of all, of all houses, Horace's house. And Saeed offers up the very gutsy but, but very sensible plan to simply walk amidst the Dharma jumpsuits uh, which is to say the Dharma jumpsuit-wearing folks, by wearing Dharma jumpsuits. Now, this plan almost works, complete with a very well-done, very selling, shaky point-of-view shot with all the look-alike suits. It's just meant to be this moment of, boy, we can see, look, there's Naveen Andrews and Matthew Fox, stars of the show. How don't they recognize them? Well, there's this great moment where it's just this this blur of of... You know, brown and black jumpsuits everywhere. Everybody looks the same when this in this frantic state. Um, and while Saeed is explaining, oh, let me back up. Pardon me. They're just about to make their way, but that's when good old angry Roger Linus can be counted on to spot those pesky hostiles. Uh, and just while Saeed is explaining, no, don't shoot. I have a nuclear device. That of course is when Roger shoots him. Now. This is an obvious setting up for Saeed being wounded, and of course something that they deal with in season six as he'll be uh, he'll be turned. But it's also a tremendously spot-on, perfect Roger moment. Roger simply could have killed everyone by just being so darned dumb, so darned hot-headed. Which isn't to say that Roger doesn't have some things to be concerned about, like his son, who he does care about, albeit in, in his drunken. I was going to say passive-aggressive, but it's drunken, aggressive, borderline abusive, perhaps directly abusive way. But, you know, 
in that Roger loves his son on some level, uh, Roger has much to be worried about. But still, Raj, you almost killed everybody. Anyhow, with that, bullets are flying, and our heroes are rescued just in time by Hurley and Jin in Dharma, the van, and the act ends. After the break, Juliet, Sawyer, and Kate are in the rubber dinghy headed back to the island. Though Sawyer says he has no idea where they are, they're met by first Vincent, who Sawyer helpfully reminds us that uh, he hasn't seen in three years, then they are joined by more friends. It's lovely that uh, kind of Bernard is given that Sawyer-esque line to cap off the scene. And it it is, of course, great to see the return of Rose and Bernard down to Bernard's long hair and bushy beard. Uh, With that, the story takes a quick jump back to the Dharma van where Jack tells Hurley to go to the Swan build site. I think this is just merely an excuse for the show to have us see Jack telling Hurley to do just that while Saeed looks in a very bad way. Then the story goes back to Rose and Bernard living as they explain the ideal life, a quiet hut by the beach where they can live together. Maybe, Bernard says, they'll die together so long as they're together. It's a tremendous moment where the show actually has the guts to undercut itself, to ask if all this fuss, the sorting out the time travel, when should they be, who's in charge of the island, how can they get back, to ask if it's all worth it. You know, the saying, can't we all just get along, has long since passed into uh, hyperbole and ridicule, but the sentiment is a good one, and In this scene, it's expressed by the most romantic couple of the entire series. The notion that somehow our heroes are on the wrong path is something that's mirrored in Juliet's face as she turns down tea from Bernard. There's almost this question, why can't they all just sit down and enjoy tea on the beach in each other's company? The show, of course, offers no answers this time. I would argue that in 19 or so episodes, they'll return to that very same idea. For now, though, there's business to be done. The story returns to Alana and company. As Bram and Frank talk about how scary the whatever it is that's in the box, um, though the question being that uh, what isn't in the box is busier. Uh, It's this... There's keeping that alive. They're saying, when are they going to tell us that? I think the instinct for first-time viewers would be that we'll see it in this episode, uh, Incident Part 1 and 2, being treated as one for a moment. Uh, Of course, that is is about to happen. Therefore, it's an effective uh, stoking of of that particular uh, flame. With that, Ilana and company arrive at Jacob's cabin, and in a wonderfully, wonderfully grounding moment, Bram notes that the ash line has been broken. Uh, Elana looks wounded, terribly so, and it's a moment of affirmation. They really are the good guys. Um, Is it definitively presented in the scene? No, but there's just this instinctual sense that that they're the good guys here. With that, as Elana heads to the cabin, 
they uh, give her her flashback where she's terribly hurt and in hospital as Jacob asks her help. Uh, it's a very kind of join me, fishers of men uh, type moment. And it also squarely uh, places her and indeed Bram and the mystery box on the side of Jacob's good. This wonderful progression that the show is giving us here of who are these people. Definitely the sides are, are settling nicely. Inside Jacob's cabin, Ilana finds bits and pieces along with that infamous dog portrait. And she finds a piece of cloth. Hey, like the cloth we saw at the top of this episode. Once outside again, it's shown that the cloth shows the statue. And with that, off they go as the cabin is burned down. And it burns so spectacularly that it's difficult to imagine um, that the, the cabin's fire would not, as Frank worries about, burn down the jungle. I don't know what sort of permit or protection or camera trickery was done with this particular uh with this particular scene you know in terms of does the hawaii parks department or fire department or something uh need to be notified that you could burn down oh so much but it really is a heck of a fire that they uh that they sell big time with that there's an act break and then a bit of an oh duh moment we're back with uh, Smokey Locks group, and the penny sort of drops here. They're headed to the statue, so is Alana. And uh, it's this kind of nice, you know, building the, the, the pace and building the tension for this finale. Uh, the group comes across a camp, which Sun unwittingly identifies to Smokey as the old camp. With that, uh, that allows Smokey to affably say, home sweet home. A little while later, Ben admits that he has made up speaking to Jacob in the cabin uh, all those episodes ago, and Smokey spells out the reasons for Ben to kill Jacob. The cancer Ben had, dead daughter, banishment. These are all reasons, although Smokey doesn't identify it as such, reasons to give up on faith. Here, the first-time viewers don't know it, is the moment of Ben's breaking, the moment that he turns aside his Jobian sense uh, to the island, that, that sense of duty that has meant so much to him. And instead, he listens to this metaphorical snake in the garden. With that, Sun kind of wanders into the scene. I say wander because she's been largely the carry-on luggage for this portion of the trip, with most of her lines kind of wedged in to justify her presence. Uh, the bridge at this point to her Jacob uh, flashback is a bit creaky. She finds Aaron's crib with Charlie's drive shaft ring, and that kind of makes her think of her wedding ring. Anyhow, we get this flashback. We see her and Jin exchanging lovely vows. Curiously, and the curiosity is pushed uh, by some winding, mysterious music. Jacob shows up and affirms their love in. Jin notes, excellent Korean. Nice little reminder. You know, Sun is there to find Jin. Jin wants to find Sun. Uh, they will be reunited in season six and, um, you know, wonderfully paired and then tragically, uh, tragically dying together towards the end of season six in, in one of the more heartbreaking uh, moments of the series. But we'll get there in two course. With that, 
Incident Part 1 is almost about to conclude, for we don't have too much further to go. How much further? Uh, we're about five minutes away. You can't stop the bleeding. I need fresh dressings. Jack, so this bomb is supposed to what, blow us back in time? We're not going back in time. Right, because that would be ridiculous. I need to modify the bomb. I can rig it so it detonates on impact. Jack, we need to be there at the moment of the incident. Or all of this would be for nothing. Why the hell are we stopping? That's why. And what do we see? Western style. Sheriff Sawyer, Kate and Juliet stand, guns in hand, ready to propel us to the next episode. I suppose it's uh, just a function of how television needs to be made. Um, that, despite the fact that this is a two-hour episode, uh, incident one and two, when combined, uh, you know, each each hour does need to fit into its uh, times for commercial breaks. Has the, the five-act pacing, teaser, three acts, and uh, and the, the hook scene at the end. And uh, so there we end, kind of mid-episode. Um, uh, we're not done. We're not even ready for Lostpedia. There's an email first that I would like to share uh, about this episode. An email sent to uh, to me from Tim. And here are Tim's thoughts. What an episode of Lost this was. I remember really liking this finale, especially this part. As you have said more than once in the podcast, a finale of Lost not only serves as a closer to a previous season, but as an opener to the upcoming season. And this finale was no different. One of the big things in this episode that stands out for me is the first on-screen appearance of Jacob. I remember as a first-time viewer being totally floored by Jacob's first appearance at the beginning of the episode, not knowing what was going on until that final zinger with the statue. I also really enjoyed the bits of him, uh, Jacob now, visiting all the different survivors at key points in their lives. Up until this point, we have only heard Jacob's name as a faceless god. Seeing him... Uh, in all, his scenes in the episodes really seemed to humanize him. As we go into season six, we'll see the layers of Jacob get peeled and peeled to see that he is as human as our main characters. I've always loved Lost when they did that, in the case of Locke, Ben, Richard, Jacob, and even in the smoke monster itself. I'll pause Tim's words here for a moment, and Tim, I think that you are, you're so very correct, and certainly in season six, uh, uh, there'll be... Plenty of time to have uh, religious uh, type discussions. Um, it is interesting, on the one hand, as godly as Jacob sees, uh, you know, what's, you know, at the end of the day, there's just kind of some, I was going to say otherworldly, but of course the island is kind of naturally driven, but there's some sort of, you know, there's some sort of uh, unhuman power given to him, but not the power of, uh, of you know, of a god. Uh, you know, of, 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 you know, the creator of heaven and earth type thing. Um, it's, uh, as you say, he is completely human. I don't know if that, on the one hand, undercuts the religious end, a discussion I'm sure that we'll have down the line. Um, does it undercut it because we're saying, you know, you know, that this is no God, this is just a man that happens to have some power? Um, I don't know, but I certainly do appreciate that, you know, that uh, well, to to make reference to another great work, you know, the man behind the curtain is uh, is indeed just a man. Uh, 
Anyhow, let's continue here with uh, Tim's words for a bit. He notes that the Jacob flashbacks in this episode does what Lost does so well, defy expectations. He goes on to say, in these first visits with Kate and Sawyer, Jacob visited them as children. As the episode progressed, we imagined that we would see Jacob visit all the characters as children. But when we saw, but when we saw Saeed's first visit with Jacob uh, was after we left the island, Tim says that he uh, wondered the story significance of that. Tim goes on to say, I want to believe that Jacob somehow knew Widmore's people were after Saeed and his wife Nadia, and perhaps allowing destiny to take its course. Also seeing Jacob at a pivotal moment of happiness was uh, very different in the case of Sun and Jin. All good points there. And uh, Tim starts to wrap up by saying uh, to me that he knows I'm not a fan of Jack, uh, but that Tim particularly loves the Jack stuff in this episode. Seeing him so committed to blowing up the bomb in order to fix everything was so in line with the character that we have known for the past few years. One thing that I really like uh, is that uh, the issue concerning Locke, not only is Jack very Locke-like in this episode and his commitment to the plan, which is very reminiscent of when Locke was committed to not letting the button get pushed in season two, but uh, he now has the belief in everything Locke said to him on the island, that uh, and that it was Jack that contributed uh, to Richard and later the others believing that Locke was as special as he is. Tim goes on to say, another thing this episode does uh, is make me feel really bad for Juliet. Everyone normally feels bad for Desmond and that he spent over three years on the island in the hatch, but at least Desmond got off the island. Juliet spent over six years on the island, never got to go home before she, spoiler alert, died. Seeing Juliet trying to make the best of her relationship with Sawyer, uh, despite the fact that it's deteriorating, uh, is something that uh, Tim says makes his heart uh, break for poor Juliet, especially when Rose and Bernard reach out to her, seeing the same thing. And the last bit here from Tim is that he notes the most intriguing thing of this episode is Ben and Locke. Seeing Terry O'Quinn play the con man in this episode is very intriguing. One thing he does in this episode that he doesn't normally do, and something that he does in a very subtle way, is the scowl he gives Ben after he tells him he's going to kill Jacob. We see it in the next episode and in the coming season. Like I've said before, Tim says, I don't know how I didn't see Locke with something else. And the heartbreaking part of this dynamic is when Locke basically forces Ben to man up and confront his demons towards Jacob, as he uh, is clearly contrite about murdering him. Tim concludes, I could go on forever, uh, as there's so much to this episode, it is a killer finale. Can't wait for the podcast and keep up the good work. So thank you, Tim, for your many, many words. Uh, I suspect we'll be hearing again from you for instant part two. Um and all excellent points there. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I watch these episodes and say, Smokey Locke is being presented so differently, so so differently, uh, not in a huge way, but the difference is so present when you know to look for it from from Smokey Locke to John Locke, if you will. But I didn't see it coming. Tim said he didn't see it coming back in. 2009, 2010. So there we go, the, uh, the red herring. And uh, with that, 
And indeed, speaking of red herrings, let's pop over to Lostpedia for the bits and pieces that I have missed. It is a shorter list this week, and then next week it is a massive, massive list. But anyhow, speaking of red herrings, Lindelof and Cuse uh, confirmed that the fish in the beginning of this episode was not a red herring, as some fans initially believed. Lostpedia also says that this is the first time Jacob's cabin is seen in the daylight. They also penultimately add... The wedding scene is the first and only new scene of the season where Daniel Day Kim and Yunjin Kim share a scene. They'd only previously appeared together in reused footage from There's No Place Like Home, Parts 2 and 3, and in The Lie. Lastly, they say, in a rather bitter and, and inflexible moment of trivia, that there is no way... Richard could have broken through a stone wall with a block wall behind it. In only six blows with a sledgehammer, while concrete blocks are easily breakable, this is not the case when they are cemented together. Cementing them together solidifies them and makes breaking them extremely difficult, even for a jackhammer or mango. It says mango on Lostpedia. I would agree using a mango unless there's some sort of other meaning for the word mango that I don't know about. Um, which I'll happily look up right now. Define mango. Um, yeah, it's just coming back as the fruit thing. Uh, so shame on you, Wikipedia, or, or Lostpedia, rather. Um, anyhow, regardless, um, here's my larger complaint, mangoes aside. Um, Richard is also, like, what, 150 years old? And there's a smoke monster that when you die by the big light water thing, you come out as a smoke monster and can take people's shape and you're evil incarnate. Um, and there's a big magnet that, that, that you know, does stuff. Uh, I'll allow that of all the people on the island, Richard, who is healthiest of everybody, in that the natural aging process does not happen to him. And presumably other things like, you know, lack of sleep or food don't bother him the way they would bother us since he kind of can't die or get worn down um i think that maybe richard could pick up a sledgehammer and do some damage on a on a wall furthermore it's just a stinking wall do you want him to be there do you want them to show 50 blows of the sledgehammer or do we smash through a six and keep the story moving the answer is the latter. And speaking of keeping the story moving, let's look ahead to next week, which will be episode 517, Incident Part 2, an episode that I'm very much looking forward to uh, to talking about. Uh, and indeed, through the magic of time travel, by the time you listen to this, Incident Part 2 will already have been recorded. In the week after that, I'll uh, sit down and uh, preview Season 6. And then with that... That we're off to the races. The last, uh, the last season, and one that I feel is uh, is coming a bit too fast, but we're, we're staying at the pace anyway. So, with that, thank you very much for listening. Certainly glad to see a longer podcast this week. Guaranteed, guaranteed to be an even longer one next week because there is a ton of clips, a ton to talk about, uh, and a ton more uh, fan feedback to add to it all. So going out on quite a bang as does the season so thank you everyone for listening talk to you all again next week for 517 the incident part two take care everybody 
and bye-bye. Thank you.